Oh, it is my joy to be here. I, uh, after COVID, I'm glad to be anywhere, right? Isn't that the, isn't that the way it is? I don't know why, uh, they keep bringing by people that have COVID to see me. I don't know what that means, but the deacons keep sending them. So, uh, we, we're having a good time in Ozark. Uh, thankfully, uh, God has, has given us 19 years of ministry there. Uh, I've been teaching in the seminary for 20 something years and, Loved biblical counseling. I love to be with you even this weekend as you think about counseling training. Uh, as he mentioned, right, week one was some foundation. Week two relates to uh, week two relates to relationships and the various aspects of counseling. This weekend we're going to talk about other issues that are important to know, and we're going to start, as you see in the board here, a counseling a comparison of counseling philosophies. And so this first hour, he said, oh, yeah, we like Kevin because he talks about the Bible a lot. But we're right when we're talking counseling philosophies, we're not going to be in very many scriptures this hour, which uh, which I don't like any more than you will. Uh, but it is important to talk about this issue of how do you discern uh, between these various competing philosophies? Right. Whenever you sit down to talk with someone, uh, they do not come to you in a vacuum. Right. They've read a little, heard a little. Uh, they've watched afternoon TV. Uh, they know what possibly uh, Dr. Oz or somebody else thinks about their problem. Uh, they certainly maybe know what Oprah thinks or any one of lots of people. Right? They know what love language they speak. Uh, they know a lot of things. And, and they have identified their problem. Right? They don't come to you even with the sense of total neutrality of just please. Help me. Now they're gonna, they have a bit of an idea of this is what my problem is. I think this is the solution. Uh, right? A little bit of oil and a little bit of, no. Uh, right? Some of them are gonna be into a particular diet or a particular kind of uh, therapy. And, and it's important for you to be able to kind of assess what you're hearing. Right? And to understand where they're coming from and, and what their goals are, and all of those things are important. And so in order to do that, we're going to be working through what I call a comparison of counseling philosophies. So let me just pick up a couple of quick things for us to get us started. Actually, we need to pick up the scripture. We need to pray, don't we? That's the best way to get started. Let's do that, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we are glad to be in Granberry. Thank you so much for these brothers and sisters uh, for the privilege to be here again, for Keith and Terry and Dan and all these great godly men who put this conference together, uh, dear friends, we're grateful for them. For these, some in the con- some here right now that I see that are my friends and others, uh, I'm convinced would be. Uh, we're glad that we can be together. We pray even as we think about counseling these, uh, this comparison of counseling philosophies, that you would give us wisdom. As we think through these things, uh, then you, you would receive the glory from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a couple of key statements here. The purpose of this lecture is for you to know enough about counseling philosophies, theories, and other theorists to make informed decisions. Let's talk about three of them. First, is my counseling different from the gal, guy down the street or the gal down the street? And if so, how? Right? Are, what you're doing when you do counseling and right when we talk about counseling we're talking big picture informal i do more informal counseling than formal counseling 
right? I have, and there's a couple people in the room that know me, uh, but if you knew me well, I carry gel pencils for gel pens for a reason. Not only do I love the way they write, but they write on napkins perfectly, right? And I do probably 85% of my counseling at tables where I just grab a napkin and scribble whatever I'm doing. And many counselees have had to take a picture of my napkin and then I send it home with them because that's the extent of the, the paper I have, right? And that's perfect. That's not, that, that does not create a problem because you can, you can do everything informally that you also need to do formally. But the question is, if they say, well, I'm seeing the therapist down the road and, and I've got some folks right now that are, that just told me about somebody they're seeing in our town, what are they doing and is it different than what they're getting at this table at the coffee shop or in our office at church or wherever? So that's the first question. Is my counseling different? Number two, can I refer to those other people? And if I can, when should I? And who should I refer to? Right? We want to give you a sense of those answers. And number three, how careful should I be when I'm cutting and pasting? Right? Is everything on Pinterest worth talking about in counseling? Or on Instagram or wherever? Right? When you see something really cool on Facebook, uh, should you put it in your Sunday school lesson or in your ABF or whatever? Right? I think that's an important question to answer as well. Here's the reality. You and your counselee have possibly both been directly and indirectly influenced by psychology. Right? That's probably a no-brainer. The goal here is to compare the primary counseling philosophies and contrast those with those of biblical counseling. All of philosophy fit, pardon me, all of, of secular psychology fits primarily in five basic philosophies. So we're going to work through those rather quickly. Right? There are over 500 different formal systems of psychology. We can't deal with all of those. Uh, but we can talk about the five, the kind of the grandparents or the up high in the tree here uh, and to figure out those. But before we do, let's talk about the world of counseling. Here's first, the world of psychology, I should say. There is no single psychology. Right? Whenever someone says to you, well, psychology says, know that that, that isn't an accurate statement. Right? Psychologists differ and differ often. And sometimes it's quite fun to listen to the way they differ, uh, right? It's the scientific study, and, and it looks like you, so I have it as a blank. You don't. That's perfect. It's the scientific study of behavior and mental processes, and the role of a psychology psychologist, I should say, is to try to describe, predict, and explain human behavior and mental processes, right? Their goal is to help. They want to help you. And they have a sense of who you are when you go to them for help. Right? So their goal is to help you. And they, again, from one of these 500 different perspectives, they have a sense of who you are, how you tick, what you, uh, how you operate, how you engage other people, how you engage your world. They have been taught that. And so when you talk with them, they're going to interpret your situation based upon what they understand to be you and who they understand you to be. Look at number two there. It says all, theolo- all psychological theories and thus counseling theories are driven by, and we have the, <laughs> a person's worldview. So the word you're looking for here is worldview. 
All psychology, psychological theories and thus counseling theories are driven by a person's worldview. And let me just make a couple of statements that relate to that. First, descriptive data. So psychologists sometimes describe something. And when you're reading descriptive data, that refers to the observations of the observer. Basically, they're saying this is what we saw. We would call that descriptive. Prescriptive data refers to the data as communicated after they apply their worldview. Or in other words, that's the interpretation they give it. By the time you read most articles, if you're reading psychology today or whatever, you are reading prescriptive data, meaning they've observed something, they've taken the eyeglasses of the way they see the world, that's what we call worldview, and they've looked at that observation based on and interpreted it based on their particular worldview. And so now they're telling you this is what we believe we see or this is what we believe that we saw. That's called prescriptive. It's impossible, and this is a key element, page two. It's impossible to divorce a person's position from his biases and assumptions or what we call the word presuppositions. It's impossible for a psychologist, and I would say even for us, to observe anything and in that observation divorce what they believe they saw and how they interpret it from generally the way they see the world. So when you receive psychology's data, right, when you hear this is what psychologists say, you have to know that whatever they say is associated with what they believe. And Jesus kind of said something like that in Luke, didn't he? In Luke 6, he says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's true for everything that you would hear from psychologists as well. In fact, listen to what, uh, listen to what is said. It's an important book by taking sides. Brent Slife is the editor. Listen to what he says. He says, scientific findings are not only decided by data, that is the information produced by scientific research, but they are also decided by theoretical allegiances, industry loyalties, and philosophical assumptions that are not themselves driven or resolved by data. These allegiances and assumptions allow for and even spawn controversial issues. Indeed, they form what some call the disguised ideologies of science. That is, implicit worldviews or philosophies that guide what variables to select for research, what methods to use in these investigations, and what sense to make of the resulting data. This is a secular textbook that we use in a college classroom that is saying whenever you go to and read psychologists, the reason there are 500 formal views is because every one of those views bring their own assumptions to the table and those assumptions inevitably are part of the entire process. Right, So that's the point that he's making here. Listen to what else he says. To begin to understand why this is true, consider what any set of dat- that any set of data is meaningless without some interpretive framework for this data. In other words, a researcher must add his or her own organization or interpretation to the data for the results of any study to be meaningful findings. 
Researchers will often claim to quote-unquote see meanings in their data, but this is not because the data inherently means something, but because the researcher already has an interpretive framework consciously or unconsciously for the data in mind. And those are his emphases. I didn't add any emphases to that. Right? He's saying it is impossible, which is what we're talking about, to divorce what someone wants to see or what someone plans to see or what someone believes they're going to see or what somebody's even wondering about. It's impossible to divorce those things from the observations that they make. So when someone comes along and says, you know, you'll never believe it. We expected to see a connection between homosexuality and genes. And then they do a little bit of study and say, it's unbelievable. We saw exactly what we expected to see. No, that's not unbelievable. That's what we expected as well. Right? If you go into a project looking for something, you inevitably will probably see that thing. Right? It's philosophically, it's like when you have a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. Right? It really changes your perspective if you have a hammer. So, listen what else Brent says. Actually, data interpretation is just one of the many places where biases can creep into scientific research. Consider how researchers have all sorts of subjective choice points in their studies. First, what to study. That's what variables are crucial. Second, how to study the variables. What operationalization and method designed to use. Third, how to analyze the study. That is, what assumptions are met and statistics used. Fourth, what the statistical research really mean, what interpretation to use. And fifth, what limits the study has, what study problems might impede certain interpretations. These choice points mean that subjective factors such as allegiance are inevitably part of any research study. So letter C, as I said, it's impossible to divorce those things. Let's look at letter D. Data is never purely objective or neutral. The interpretation of the data is also seriously presuppositionally driven. Right? So whenever you read something, when somebody says, well, this is what science says, or this is what psychologists say, you have to be aware that when they say something, it represents a much larger belief system. We're going to be talking about that belief system as we go along here. There are five major competing perspectives in the field of psychology. The word you're looking for here is perspectives. There's five of them. What are those major perspectives? The first one is neuroscience. That views behavior... From the perspective of biological functioning. In other words, neuroscience would say, you are your biology. So if we tweak the biology, we tweak the person. Right? So neuroscience would be the first perspective. Psychodynamic, in terms of order of when they arrive, psychodynamic would be number one. That's Freud. Sometimes referred to as depth psychology, it believes that behavior is motivated by inner unconscious forces over which a person has very little control. We'll come back to these in a bit. We're just giving them to you here. Behavioral, sometimes referred to as behaviorism, that's Skinner. It focuses on observable behavior as it looks at and considers people. 
Cognitive would be number four. That examines how people understand and think about their world. Right? So it deals primarily with the way you think. Right? Behavioral is C. Cognitive D. Cognitive behavioral therapy is then what? It's a combination of both of those uh, two perspectives. And then letter E is humanistic. Sometimes here referred to as third force psychology. It would be Rogers. It contends that people can control their behavior and that they naturally try to reach their full potential. That's the humanistic perspective. So those are the five competing schools. Or if you take those 500 different systems, they have somewhere in those systems one or portions of these five roots. Right, So these are the big five, if we're going to think of it that way. What are the five conflicts then within each perspective? Right, So we have five perspectives, and inside those perspectives, all of them are trying to figure out these five major questions. And this isn't from me. This is from uh, Psych 101. Right, So I'm not... This isn't my interpretation of it. This is from the psychology book. Again, one of the textbooks we teach at the college. What are those five? Well, here's the first one. Nature... Versus nurture, right? You've probably heard that before, right? People talk about it. They talk about that at lots of places. That's one of the things they're trying to figure out. Another one is conscious versus unconscious uh, choices of behavior. In other words, how much of what we do is conscious versus how much is not, right? We know Freud. In fact, just yesterday I was with some people and somebody said, oh, that was a Freudian slip. What is that? That's an unconscious Right? There's something in the unconscious that produces the error uh, that he had when he was talking. Letter C, observable behavior versus internal mental processes. In other words, should we study thinking or study only what we can see? The fourth question they ask is, what is it, free will or determinism? Basically, how much of what a person does is from his or her free will versus how much is out of our control. It's just stuff that we do that we have essentially no control over uh, whatsoever. And then number five, individual differences versus universal principles. Essentially, that question is how much of behavior is a consequence of our unique and special qualities and how much reflects the culture and society in which we live right so how much behavior is universally human or how much of it depends upon your zip code and things like that those would be related to letter e so what do we have we have five perspectives and in those perspectives they're all trying to figure out these five major conflicts what's the goal I think this is important for us to understand. The goal of all counseling theories or models is to help people. All models seek to make life better or more palatable for the client or what we would say in biblical counseling for the counselee. The reason I have this in your notes is because I don't want you to hear me say something different than what I'm saying. I want you to understand that when you send... When someone's going to a secular therapist, you may disagree with that secular therapist's theology and the way they view the world. You'll disagree with their presuppositions. 
But we don't want to assume that their motive is any less uh, of a true, kind motive as yours. Now, if they don't know Christ, they're not going to have the love of Christ as their motive. So there will be a motive difference at that level. But that doesn't mean that their true heart desire isn't to be kind to people. Right, so we don't want to ever, as biblical counselors, sound like that we're judging the motives of non-biblical counselors. Because, and if we are, then we need to repent. We don't know their motive. In fact, we're going to assume their motive is a good motive. But that doesn't mean that they're actually speaking and teaching truth or that they truly understand the human condition. Number six, then, there are three basic approaches to helping people. You've kind of talked about this uh, throughout the last two months, I think. The first one, of course, is secular psychology. It functions, and some of you may not appreciate this depending on your background, but it functions in an anti-God worldview or context. Right? Psychology and theology, if you put those systems side by side, and this is a whole hour Actually, a whole seminary class teaches this, so I'm giving it to you in two minutes. right? So if you put those two systems side by side, they 100% mirror each other. Why? Because the secular world is wanting to figure out how do you live and function in a broken world just as much as godly people. right? They have a belief system. They have a methodology of, of trying to function inside that belief system. They have people who are uh, practitioners. They have uh, intended ends that they're hoping for. And they all have a starting point. They all have presuppositions. From that standpoint, you can compare them side by side and they certainly come from two different opposing worldviews. The Bible, of course, biblical counseling, comes from God's Word. And it should be consistent with God's word. Secular psychology comes from the DSM-4 and is evolutionary, right? It's, it's based off of evolution or naturalism. It's not based off of the Bible. So they, they begin with two different ways of seeing people. And if you start in those two different places, one honorable to God, the other one not, that's going to lead you to two different conclusions, Integrational psychology seeks to take elements of the scripture and add those to secular psychology. So anytime you take one system A and add another system B, then you end up with a third system C. And that would be called the integration. You're taking something from secular psychology. You're adding some kind of principle or verse or something from the Bible the result of that, now the system you're counseling from is what we would call integration. Right? So that would be the second system. Here's the third one. That would be biblical counseling. It relies on, and you might underline this word, this is important, comprehensively sufficient. It relies on the comprehensively sufficient word of God. What does comprehensive mean? It means that the Bible comprehensively gives us everything we need to know in order to help someone honor God no matter what kind of pressure-filled circumstance they live in. It does not, it's not exhaustive. 
You understand the difference between those two words? No one that is teaching true biblical counseling would say that the Bible is exhaustive. We would say it's comprehensive. There's a a major difference between the two. We don't go to the Bible to learn how to change our oil. But we go to the Bible when we're changing oil if it splashes all over us and ruins our clothes. Right? It gives us the means by which we handle us in the midst of changing oil. But it doesn't tell us how to change the oil. It doesn't tell us how to do brains, to do brain surgery. But it certainly tells us about the person we're doing brain surgery on. And it helps reveal our own heart if we're the doctor doing the surgery. Or if we're the person going through the surgery procedure, it tells us how to prepare our own heart even in the midst of suffering. Right? So the Bible is, is comprehensive. It's not exhaustive in terms of its sufficiency. So number seven, how do you see and use the Bible? That's another major question you have to think about. Let me give you four simple answers. First, there's general revelation. General revelation is, it declares, I should say, the glory of God. That is God's eternal power and deity that comes out of Romans 1 to all people everywhere. Right, So it is Psalm 19, remember, it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth its handiwork. And then through all six verses, it describes what that looks like. So general revelation isn't, understand, general revelation isn't go out and look at the trees and talk about photosynthesis and why are they turning colors. That's not general revelation. General revelation is beyond that. It's when you look at the trees, you say, there must be a God. Now what? An unbeliever is going to uh, suppress that, according to Romans 1. But general revelation declares the glory of God in the created order around us. What about special revelation? Psalm 19, 7-11 would describe it, and it declares... Essentially, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ to those who come in contact with the Word of God. Special revelation is a revelation from God and it's to specific people. Who are those people? Anybody who engages God's Word. What does God's Word ultimately declare? It declares Jesus Christ as the answer, uh, as the, as the center of the gospel itself. Both are revelation from God to man. Only known because God reveals it. That's a key sense. You do not go out and learn about God in the sticks and the leaves and all those things through your own discovery. The only reason you would walk out and engage your world, and I'm, uh, I have the privilege of staying on the lake this weekend, one of the beauties of coming here, And when you walk out and you see the gorgeous lake in front of you, the fact that you would say, oh, thank you, God, for this is not from your own cognition. It's the glory of God that's declared in the world around us. Right. So it's not it's something that God reveals. It's not something you discover. And here's letter D. General revelation, which is why they use the word general, is to all people. Special or specific revelation is to anyone who receives the word of God. 
Right? So do you see that the, the reason one is called general, it doesn't relate to the kind of revelation. It relates to the recipient of the revelation. Right? When you read integrational work, often they will get this wrong. They will assume that general revelation speaks to the kind. So if you're out doing, uh, if you out, go out and study psychology, then you are going to learn general revelation. That's not accurate. General relates to the recipient. It's to all people everywhere who's ever lived. Specific then would be those that in our day have received God's word. Number eight then. God's word is truth and is the ultimate authority. John 17, 17, 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. Make that crystal clear. All other truth claims fail both at the observation level and at the authority level. Right? So those that you say, boy, that's a lot of introduction. It is. Because those are really what I'm describing to you is our presuppositions. Right? God has given us his word. And as Second Timothy says, as it is God breathed, it is breathed to us, given to us. It is our authority. And everything else in the world then must function and fall under the authority of God's word. So if there are five major perspectives, and in those perspectives, they ultimately flesh out in over 500 formal uh, psychologies, the question is, how do we evaluate them? Let me give you six specific questions you can ask that help you understand psychology. Here's the first one, and the second one, it looks like. We'll start with the first one. How do they propose to know what they know? That's an issue of epistemology. Now, it looks like we have something missing. I can't see the next slide here. So, yeah. So I'm going to have to fill in a couple of the A, B, C, D for you. How do they propose to know what they know? I'm using a new PowerPoint, as you can see. Uh Basically, that's the philosophy of knowing. It's called epistemology. Right? It's like the, like having a two-year-old always in your head. Right? You say, oh, this is what, this is what dad said. Why? Right? It's that question. Why? 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 That's epistemology. Right? The sky is blue. Why? Right? How do you know that? That's the, the ultimate question. In life, there's really four main ways we answer that question. Let me give them to you. Letter A would be this, intuition. It's just something I know to be true. Right? It's intuitive sense. So I don't need proof or reason support. It's just what I know to be true. We call that in modern days Twitter, right? You don't have to know anything. You just go on and say whatever you want. There's nothing you need. No reasons, no reasoned proof. Here's letter B. Reason. Reason. Now, there's everybody uses reason, so we're not saying that's a problem, but reason cannot be our authority for making decisions. Same thing with intuition. We all have an intuitive sense of how things work. 
Right? My uncle used to, he was so funny. We, I grew up in Kentucky uh, in the country. And so if we were looking at something and we asked him a question, he would say, ah, oh, and give you an answer. And it was just his intuitive sense. And he was going to die on it. Right? It didn't, he didn't know anything about it. But he knew everything about it. Right? So that is my good uncle. <laughs> that was intuitive, his intuitive sense. That's fine if you're on a farm. It's not fine if you're thinking about eternity and how to please the Lord. Right? That can't be your authority. Same thing with reason. Yes, we all use reason, but can you build your counseling model based as reason, with reason as your authority? The answer is no. Letter C is empiricism. E-M-P-I-R-I-C-I-S-M, empiricism. What is that? That's truth that's proven, quote unquote, by observable data. What are we talking about? We're talking about the scientific method. Right, So those things you can see, touch, feel, smell, and hear, that would be empirical research or empiricism. And so that's developing your system based primarily on what you can observe through your five senses. Most of the science and most, uh, most of everything comes from this empirical level. And letter D then would be revelation. Revelation, that's the highest authority that sets the parameters on every other discussion. If we were to take a quick field trip to Walmart, right, there's a lot to watch at Walmart. So we see this person at Walmart, this particular parent, and we ask this parent, hey, what do you think about corporal punishment? Right? What do you think about the way you discipline your children? One parent may say, intuitively, I don't feel good about it, so therefore I don't do it. Another parent may use their reason and say, you know, it just doesn't make good sense to me how you believe hitting a child is going to produce what you really want to produce long term in this person's life. So it just doesn't make sense. That would be reason. An empirical person may say, well, you know, research shows that if you do corporal punishment, they're eight times more likely to be depressed and become an axe murderer or something. Right? So it relies on research to answer this question. Or someone who re- relies on revelation may say, well, Proverbs says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So you have to ask, what's the authority for the decision that you're making? That's the first question we have to ask of all psychology is what's your authority for your position? Here's question two. What's already there. How do they explain who and what is man? That's an issue of anthropology. Who and what is man? Notice, what does the theorist teach about man's motives, his compositions, the effect of the environment on him or what makes this particular person tick, right? The question is, as you think about it, how do you understand people? What is the origin of man? Why does he do what he does, right? We're thinking about this particular individual. That's an issue of epistemology. 
Look at letter B then. Your view of man will determine your counseling theory and counseling practice. Right? So how you see a man, such as a person's heart, do you see a person's heart as passive or, <coughs> pardon me, or do you see it as active? Right? Do you, uh, is, is what someone does normal or abnormal? How would you know? How would you determine those things? That's part of anthropology. How do you view people? Look at question three then. We would say, considering man's problems, how is the problem defined? Is it generally blamed on some force outside the person? Is it something in the past? Is it an unmet need? Is there something physical that's wrong with this person? What standard is used to define the problem? How seriously is the problem taken? Right? All of those are important questions to ask. If you're talking about a problem, how did you define it? Number five. Oh, pardon me. Number four. How is the problem solved? Can and should the problem be solved? What standard or norm is used to determine the solution? Is it man's reasoning and observations or is it the Bible principles? Or is it some combination of those? What steps are recommended? What motives are accepted and not accepted? When counseling is over, does the counselee consider the problem to be more or less severe than when he came in? Is the counselee told to take responsibility? All of those are questions that relate to how do you solve the person's problem? Number five, what's the goal of counseling? What product is the counseling intended to produce? Is it to get rid of the problem? Is it to feel better and be more comfortable, better able to cope, be in better control, like yourself better, feel better, feel accepted? Or is it to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus Christ? What's the counseling supposed to look like and sound like when it's all finished? I was talking to a teenager yesterday and he had gone to a secular therapist and I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, if I follow this secular therapist, I'm going to really be... He didn't use the word secular therapist. He said, if I follow my therapist, life is really going to get boring. <laughs> but, well, interesting. Right? So there's a lot we could talk about. So what's the goal of counseling? Maybe it's to be boring. Number six, what's the role of the counselor? Is it an expert? Is it an authority? Is it a friend? Is it a brother? Right? What exactly... Is the role. Now, before you turn your page, I hear you turn them. I have teacher's ears. I hear what you're doing. Those six questions are the six critical questions that you can evaluate any position of psychology. If you understand these six questions, you're going to know a lot about the way that person sees life, sees people, sees problems, understands them, what solution they're going for what goals that they have, this is very helpful. Now I believe you're going to see an empty page. And so you're going to pass by page 5 and pages 6 and 7 is a pretty cool little chart here. Now what is this chart? This chart, if you look across the top, it contains the five major perspectives of psychology. And on the sixth column, 
we've added the Bible, God's perspective. And then on the left of each of those pages, pardon me, on the left side, I should say, of page six, it's going to give you the six questions we just dealt with. So we're going to ask those six questions, but because we only have an hour, right? I take a couple weeks to talk about this in seminary. But we only have one hour, so we're going to ask quickly those six questions, and then we're going to think about the implications. So if you say, boy, there's a lot more he could have said, I would say, yes, you're right. I'm only saying what's here. So let's talk about neuroscience. Right? Neuroscience is fairly new to the scene. Right? This particular gentleman, he is the one who came up with the idea of neurons and how they fire and, and fibers and the system and all of those kinds of things. A kahal. And what would he say about man? Well, he would say man is biology. Right? You are your biology. So if I give you a pill and that affects your biology, then I am affecting you. Right? I am essentially changing you as long as you're on that medicine. What else would he say? Well, you're an evolutionary being. Right? You're no different than the animal world. So how is the problem defined? In this system, the problem is defined as a chemical or biological problem. Right, again, so you've got this problem, and it's a biological problem. So if we change your chemicals, then that's the problem is solved. We adjust the biology. Right, so it's important to take your medicine. You would say, and as you know, right, I would say a vast majority of people in our local churches, and of course in culture generally, uh, are on some kind of psychotropic medication. I think you're going to talk about that next hour. right? So I think that's an important issue to understand. But that is, when they're taking medicine, what are they doing? Well, they're adjusting their biology, which is solving their problem inside this particular perspective. What's the goal of counseling? Well, the goal of counseling is just to accept your biology and to take your medicine. right? Because if you take your medicine and you accept your biology... And with a few extra skills, you're going to be able to cope and function better. Right? So, what's the role of the counselor? The role of the counselor is the biologist or he's a doctor, an MD. Although we know at this point uh, many different types of counselors. You don't have to be a medical doctor or a psychiatrist uh, to give medicine anymore. Uh, you have to be a medical doctor, but you don't have to be a psychologist. So what are the implications? Let me just give you a couple. One, counseling is not responsible for what they do because it's a biological problem. My body fails me, so I must accept who I am. Right. So if I've got this body problem, I need to get the necessary medicine to help me. Again, you're going to talk more about this later. I'm not saying all there is to say here. We're talking in just a moment or two. Number three. My problem is a medical issue similar to any other illness. Right? So, number four then. For the church, let me suggest two things. Many in the church are on psychotherapeutic drugs. And the fact that they are suffering should bother all of us. Right? We hate that they're suffering. We pray God's best for each one of those people. But many in the church are on psychotherapeutic drugs. It's not a sin to be on a psychotherapeutic drug. Right, that's not in the Bible. Uh, 
potentially some of the motives for taking psychotherapeutic drugs could fall into sin. Right? So now we're nuancing carefully, aren't we? Uh, the fact that there are people in your church, we wouldn't call that a, ch- a crutch. We would just say simply they're on psychotherapeutic drugs from a particular perspective of their medical doctor that has put them on that medicine. Right? So again, I'm not saying more. You're going to have another session here in a second that, that helps you understand that better. Often, any in the, many in the church refer to sin as an illness or disease. Right? And so that's a problem. Uh, so just because somebody's on medicine, we can't then take sin and say, well, look, that's just part of the disease. So we want to be careful there. Number, the second perspective is the psychodynamic perspective. That's Sigmund Freud. You may have heard of him. What would he say? Well, man is an instinctual animal. Right? Human nature, he would say, is deterministic. That means that What is going on inside of you determines how you live, determines how you respond to things. Personality is structured around the id, the superego, and the ego. There's a lot we could say here, and we just can't. And number four, uh, he's going to deal with both the consciousness and the unconscious. Uh, So that relates to how you do things and why you do things. How do they define the problem? Well, the problem is defined as a conflict between the id and superego. Right, The id wants to do its own thing, but the superego is standing there forcing it to do something that the possibly teachers or the culture or religion or somebody else, parents, would want them to do. Right, You don't get to do what you want to do. So there's a conflict which creates false guilt. How's the problem solved? Well, through psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Usually lots of it. If and then how, what's the goal of counseling is to get rid of guilt by shifting blame and labeling guilt as false. Again, we don't have time to flesh this out. I'm just giving you the broad sense of how we answer these questions per perspective. So what's the role of a counselor? It's an expert. That's why a counselor does not get to know a client. Right? There isn't any informal relationship. It's all formal. Because you need that in order to be the kind of expert you need to be. What are some of the implications for counseling? Well, again, the counselee is not responsible. The reason there's a problem between the id and superego is because of those that are in the superego level of a person's life that are influencing them. Right? He must have an expert to understand who he truly is. It's going to take a lot of counseling. Right? Psychoanalysis. There's no cure, only progression or stability. And for the church, two things. In this system, the church is not important and religion is viewed as harmful. I mean, Freud was very specific about that. But Freud is one of them that said, we just need a secular system that replaces the church. And again, that's why the systems are so similar. And we want to be careful that the advice we share with each other isn't consistent with this particular system when we had a i'll tell one quick story when when we had our final child uh who's now 10 uh, kelly and i were hitting uh the upper end of childbearing at that particular point 
And a friend of mine said, hey, I know it's been seven or eight years since you've had your last baby, so this is something you need to know. Oh, what's that? When you change their diaper, never say, shoo-wee, or oh, boy, you stink, or anything like that, because you're going to imprint that on this child's mind, and that's going to create problems in the future. Right now, what is that? That's Freud packaged in a loving statement given to me in a church. Right? So we want to be careful of the advice we give. Behaviorism. That's B.F. Skinner. And my response was too late. So, (laughs) number one, man is a conditioned animal. Right? So... <laughs> what are you born as? You're born as he would say a blank computer card, right? You don't. There's a whole gener, multiple generations of people in here that don't even know what that means. Uh, you're born essentially as an empty hard drive, to put it in today's language. Uh, so all of your experiences in life that you experience through your five senses. All of those things then begin to write the programming on that empty hard drive. Right, so you're not a free agent because you are basically you are what you have experienced. So how do you define the problem? Well, your environment has produced behavior that's unacceptable. And so what the problem is solved by restructuring someone's environment. And the goal of counseling is to change the standard so that that environment can be changed. Number six, then, what's the role of the counselor? It's a technician. Skinner came after Freud. Skinner was a scientist. Freud wasn't. And Skinner couldn't stand what Freud was doing. Right? He wanted something that was observable. Right? He, he was trying to apply the scientific method to understanding people and problems. So what are implications? Let me give you a couple. First, the counselee is not responsible, again, since his behavior is determined by his environment. Only behavior is subject to examination because it alone can be observed and measured. And for the church, understanding, reconditioning, and restructuring is important because a lot of that goes on, uh, especially in classrooms. Right, So it's the way we do discipline. There's a lot of parts of behaviorism that have slipped into the church. In fact, sometimes much of what biblical counseling is is just a veneer for behaviorism. So we have to be very careful uh, in that relation, in that regard. All right, cognitive. We'll have to rush through these last ones. Right, cognitive relates to how you think. And they would say man is a meaning maker. You process information very similar to a computer, but as you know, sometimes those computers get messed up. And so there can be cognitive distortion. What do we, this is a term you're probably familiar with, dysfunctional thinking. Right? You might have exaggerated or automatic thinking, and in this particular system, as you put all those together, essentially you're misinterpreting the circumstances around you. And so the problem is solved by restructuring the way that you think. You teach someone to examine their own thoughts, and in the process of examining those, you correct 
you catch and correct thoughts that are inaccurate and you replace those with thoughts that are helpful. And so you learn basically to have an observing self that helps in this process. So the goal of counseling is to change your thinking and that will change your behavior. So the role of the counselor then is a teammate, it's a coach, it's a collaborative effort. If you've ever had cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, then you know this process well. So what are implications? Again, the counselor is not responsible because there's a malfunction in the way they think. And given the right amount of effort, encouragement and study and discernment, my thinking can change and if my thinking changes, then I will change. For the church, again, we need to be careful that we do not think change is simply a matter of changing one's mind. Right? The Bible discusses change broader than that. And this is typical to cognitive behavioral therapy. All right, what about third force? That's Carl Rogers. Essentially, man is unique and is basically good. And everybody has potential within and you mature much like a flower in the right environment. You're going to turn into something very beautiful. The social environment has interfered with you. That's the problem. So that you've not realized your potential. So how do you solve that? Through non-directive or what they call client-centered therapy. There's a focus on your feelings and your attitudes. And the solution to the problem is within yourself. So everybody has their own truth. What's the goal? Well, the goal is to be comfortable with yourself. And the role of the counselor is to be a mirror. Essentially to help you understand what you're thinking. So the counselor, again, is not responsible. Value judgment and directives based on those judgments are not acceptable. If you're the counselor, you can't say this is what's right and this is what's wrong. For the church, this sometimes encourages us to back away from biblical instruction and robust wisdom. So what does that often sound like? Well, some people say, well, I'm just a good sounding board. Sounding board is coming straight out of humanistic psychology. So we miss a good, loving, biblical view of change. All right, what about biblical counseling? God's our leader. right? Man is created by God in the image of God in order to honor God. And he is relational and morally responsible. So what's the problem? You're a fallen image bearer by nature and you're a sinner by choice. Right? Guilt is real. This is the only system that labels it as such. How's the problem solved? Well, it's the issue of sanctification, isn't it? It's justification first, then progressive sanctification as you seek to live a life that honors the Lord. What's the goal of counseling? To live in the spirit through the word. And the role of the counselor then is a spiritual friend or a neuthetic counselor or a biblical counselor, a brother or a sister, right? Lots of words we could use there. Implications? Well, the counseling is responsible. Guilt is taken seriously. Counseling is God-oriented, where in every other system that we've discussed, it's not God-oriented, it's man-centered, it's a major difference. And for the church, we would say biblical counseling is not a program. It's the way of the church. It's life in the church. It's the real answer for people that you're talking to and dealing with. And it's the only system to really deal with the true problems of mankind.
Let me just wrap up with a series of implications here and we'll be done with our time. First, as you know, this has not been exhaustive by any nature, but hopefully helpful. Biblical counseling ought to grow out of a biblical view of man. Right? It's essential that it grows out of a biblical view of man. Guilt is taken, so all counseling then must be, I should say, God-oriented. All counseling is God-oriented. Guilt is taken seriously. The responsibility of the counselee is recognized. Sorry, I'm just giving you the highlights. You've been working on this for a couple weeks already. Behavioral change is possible and it can occur now. How? Through the power of the Spirit. The counselee is accepted as a person God created. We love people. Why? Because we're loved by God. And this person's in the image of God. Biblical counseling is the only system of counseling that offers real hope of life and change. Why? Because it not only gives you hope for change today, but ultimately gives you an answer for eternity. An answer to your sin and sin problem. Number seven. Apparent similarities between biblical counseling and other models do not justify the use of those models. Just because we all ask questions doesn't make Rogerian counseling the way to go. Or other examples there. And number eight. You should begin to see that the scriptures are totally sufficient for counseling. Why? Because they're exhaustive. What do they help us do? They help us understand people, understand situations, and understand God. You put all three of those together and what do you have? You have counseling. Lord, I pray you give us wisdom as we seek to do this well. We're humbled by the fact that you let us, you trust us to serve under your name And for your children, may we do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, enjoy your break.